Well, we're going to continue this week our study on Psalm 119. We have two weeks left, this week and then next week. Uh, thank you to Aaron uh, for preaching last week. Last week, Aaron showed us that the right response to the Word of God is loyalty. He talked about having an intentional, relentless, and unwavering commitment to God and His Word. This morning, we're going to think a little bit more about the wonder of God's word, the wonder of God's word and his righteousness. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. One of the first songs that we sang this morning was praise to the Lord, the almighty. And that that's an amazing song that talks about the almighty nature of God and our praise and adoration of him. It has a special place in my life because uh, 15 years ago, Emily walked down the aisle to that song, 15 years ago this week. And so as Emily and I got married, it was, it was the best day of my life, one of the, the most memorable days of my life, and just remembering standing there uh, with Emily. She was beautiful. Her hands were in my hands. She was dressed in white and saying her vows, and me saying my vows. It was a wonderful event. And in that moment, wonder filled my heart. I was amazed. I was amazed at Emily and amazed at this amazing event of our wedding. God gives us these, these events of wonder, these times where we experience the wonder and amazement of God in a fresh way in almost a palpable way, where we are lost in wonder and amazement. Fast forward a few years later, as I saw each of my children being born, those, those births filled me with wonder. As I stood there and held my children for the first time, I was amazed and in wonder at that event. So when I saw Mercy, Jimmy, Zion, and Hosanna all being born and, and holding them in my hands, wonder filled my heart. And even more than, than holding up my, my kids, but, but then giving the baby to Emily, who after hours of intense labor, it's, it's as if that wonder of holding the newborn child washed away all those hours of labor. That, that, that wonder that is so incredible that, that God gives us those events. Another time when I experienced the wonder of God was when we were in Minnesota, my grandparents came to visit us and we went up to Lake Superior. And if you know anything about Superior Lake, it's a, it's a massive, one of the great lakes, a massive freshwater lake. And there was a mist, uh, biggest lake. Yep, thanks, Aaron. Biggest lake in the world, I'm going to say. You can Google it. Um, so, but just the, the mist coming up off the lake, and there was like a rainbow inside the mist. There was the lighthouse on the, the rocks there. It was my heart filled with wonder. And my grandma looks to me and says, I wonder if this is what it will be like when we are all around the throne. The reality is it will be infinitely more glorious than the most wonderful event of your life. That's what it's going to be like. 
So God gives us these experiences of wonder. When we see something beautiful and majestic and glorious and our hearts respond in amazement, in wonder, God gives us those good gifts. And some of the wisest people in the, in the history of the world have thought about this experience of wonder, this experience of wonder. So Socrates and Einstein are two of them. We started school this week, so we've got to get our school minds going. You're going to sound smart by thinking of Socrates and Einstein. But, but Socrates said that wonder is the origin or starting place of all philosophy. Wonder is the starting place of philosophy. Einstein talked about wonder as a sort of intoxicated joy and amazement at the beauty and grandeur of this world. He went on to say that, Einstein, the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion that stands at the cradle of true art and true science. Whoever does not know it and can no longer wonder, whoever does not know it can no longer wonder can no longer marvel. And that person is as good as dead and his eyes are dimmed. So there's a lot of good things that Einstein said there, but fundamentally he gets wonder wrong. He gets wonder wrong. He says that wonder is an emotion. It's this feeling that we get at something beautiful. But The wise of this world, what the world has to offer us, the wonder that the world has to offer us is only a feeling. It doesn't go beyond that to think about what's the source of wonder. What's the source of beauty, of majesty, of glory that evokes this feeling inside my soul? The wisest people of this earth say that wonder is simply an emotion. It's simply a feeling, and it's ultimately mysterious. It's, it's almost as if the wonder that the world has to offer is bankrupt because it's only a question mark. It doesn't leave us with the wonder of amazement. It only leaves us with the wonder of questioning. What is the source of beauty, wonder, and amazement? For the Christian... The source of this wonder and amazement and beauty is fundamentally known. It's a known thing. It's a revealed thing. Wonder isn't supposed to design, isn't designed to let us question, isn't designed to leave us in a mysterious fog or a mysterious haze. Wonder is supposed to lead us to content. It's supposed to lead us to something truly beautiful and amazing. And that, that thing is God Himself. Christianity offers us a different type of wonder. It it offers us a wonder that is known. God is there and he is not silent. God has spoken so we can know true things about him. We don't have to have some idol to an unknown mysterious God. We can know God because he has come near and made himself known. Our text this morning in Psalm 119 shows us that it's the word, the testimonies of God that show us the wonder of God himself. So look with me at Psalm 
119, starting in verse 129. The main point of this text is that God, God's wonder is seen in his, in his word, which reveals both his wonder and his righteousness. So look with me at Psalm 119, starting in verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let them have and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. So this morning we're going to focus on this stanza and the next stanza. And then at the end I'll read the third stanza. But we're just going to start with looking at this first stanza, especially verse 129. Verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. So this is a, a difficult verse to translate. It's, a difficult, it's difficult to translate because it doesn't quite fit the way this word is used in the other parts of the Bible. So it could be, wonderful are your testimonies. The emphasis falls on that, that word wonderful. It's the first word in the sentence. It could be wonderful are your testimonies. Marvelous are your testimonies. Miraculous are your te- testimonies. Extraordinary or beyond understanding are your testimonies. But I think the best and most literal translation is wonders are your testimonies. Wonders are your testimonies. So they are the, the word, the testimonies of God are both wonderful. If you use it as an adjective, it's wonderful, but it also inspires wonder within our souls. One of the best known stories in the Old Testament is the story of Samson. Everyone knows the story of Samson's strength, the, the tragic story of Samson and Delilah. But one of the less known aspects of Samson's life is the story around his birth. Judges chapter 13 tells a story of Samson's birth. As is so often in scripture, there is a woman who is struggling to have children, struggling with barrenness. And a man whose name is Manoah, and they are out working under oppression of Israel's enemies. And one day the, the Lord comes to Manoah's wife as an angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord comes to Manoah's wife and says, You are barren and have no children, but you will have a son. And so then the angel of the Lord describes how, how special this son is going to be. That she and this son must be set apart to the Lord. They must not become ceremonially unclean in any way, but they have to live a holy, sanctified, set-apart life. And so the angel of the Lord leaves, and Manoah's wife goes and runs and tells the good news to Manoah. She says, Manoah, we have a son. We're going to have a son. 
And we have to do this and this and this. And Manoah starts to get nervous. And he says, well, I need to ask the Lord what we're supposed to do in in case you didn't get some of that right. So he prays and he asks God, God, would you send the angel again to tell me exactly how we're supposed to raise this special boy? So in Judges chapter 13, verse 17, God comes again. The angel of the Lord comes again. In verse 17, it says, And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask what my name is, seeing that is wonderful? That's our word. So Manoah took a young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, the one who works wonders. Same word. And Manoah and his wife were watching. So in this text, the angel of the Lord is none other than God himself. We call this a theophany, when God himself comes near and reveals himself. And the text says the angel of the Lord meets them, but it's really God himself. And he tells that to Manoah by saying, can't you see that my name is wonderful? God himself is infinitely beyond us. He was, he was infinitely beyond Manoah, but he's also infinitely beyond us. He is high above us. He, our, our thoughts can't grasp him. We can't understand his worth. He's beyond us. He's infinitely mysterious, transcendent, which is a big word to say he's just way too big for us. He's beyond our understanding. So when this word wonderful is used or wonder is used, it's supposed to remind us that God is infinitely above and beyond us, that he is infinite in his holiness, that he is majestic in his splendor. And, and even the seraphim and, and cherubs veil their eyes because the mystery of the beauty of God is too bright for them to see. Even the seraphim, who've never, never sinned in their entire lives. If you take any of the saints of the Old Testament and see how they reacted when they met God, it was always this existential crisis, right? It was this terror at God himself because they meet God in all his holiness, all his splendor. They see the infinite and majestic worth of God and they compare that worth with themselves and they are undone. Woe is me, says Isaiah. John falls on his face as though dead. God is infinite. God is too wonderful for us. R.C. Sproul once said, Do you not know that God dwells in light inaccessible? We weak and ignorant creatures want to probe and understand the incomprehensible majesty of the unfathomable light of the wonder of God. We approach. We prepare ourselves to approach. What wonder, then, is this majesty that overpowers us and shatters us? Even when we prepare to approach God, even when we we come before him, we, we ask him to forgive our sins, even when we do that, we need to remember that God is the one who dwells in inapproachable light. And his majesty overpowers us. His majesty shatters us. 
Job in the Old Testament experienced this as well. Job, who was a righteous man, he was a blameless man, man before God. He was the one that God had his eyes on. God was pleased with his actions. And yet Job mysteriously goes through this series of sufferings. He loses his children to tragedy. He loses his, his wife who walks away from the faith. He loses all his wealth, all his goods, everything that belonged to him. It, it, it just went away in one day after tra- when tragedy struck. Tragedy after tragedy after tragedy struck, and it left Job destitute. It left him destitute, lying on the ground. His, his friends couldn't even recognize him, lying on the ground in grief. But if that wasn't bad enough, it, his health also was struck. And he had boils, boils that were filled with pus and, and just, just was emaciated. And his friends didn't even recognize him. And he held on to his righteousness. He said, why is God indicting me? What have I done? If I've lusted after someone else's wife, if I've oppressed my, my servants, if I've wronged the poor, God can speak against me. It was a mystery to Job why he was suffering, because he was a good man. God doesn't answer his question, but God, what God does is he comes near to Job and he reveals himself to Job. He reveals himself to Job in a whirlwind and he speaks about himself. God speaks about his character, about how amazing he is, how wonderful he is. And that revelation of God himself answers all Job's questions. Job repents. And in Job 42, he says, it says, Job replied to the Lord. He replies to this revelation of God. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours, God, can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. That's our same word. Too wonderful to, for me. Too beyond me. Verse 4. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you answer me. My eyes have heard of you, but, but my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So this word, this, this word wonders or wonderful, it describes how God himself is beyond everything that we could ever ask or imagine. He is holy. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely unknown. He dwells in inapproachable light. But what the, the psalmist does here in, in Psalm 119 verse 129 is he uses poetic irony. He uses poetic irony because he uses this word that, that focuses on how vast, how immeasurable, how unknowable God is. And yet he says, your word is wonderful. He's, he's making a claim about God's word that you can only actually make about God himself and his works. That his word itself is unfathomable. That there is something supernatural about the works of God that we can't search them out. 
But he says that here in your testimonies, it's as, this one, as if this wonderful thing, this too big thing for me, comes near to me and makes me understand it. This thing that's beyond me draws near and explains himself to me in his word. Therefore, my soul will keep it. His word is vast and beyond me, yet he's come to me and explained amazing thing about himself and his works. Therefore, my soul, my life is going to follow in his ways. So God and his works are beyond us, but at the same time, they're near us and with us and explained to us in his word. God isn't someone who, who just stays out there. He's not someone who just stays out mysterious and unknown, some mysterious other, some other unknown transcendent. That's not who God is. God is unfathomable, unfathomable, but he comes near to us and he explains himself to us in his word. The infinite God reveals himself in the Bible and he's the one who comes to us and teaches us in his word. Like John Calvin once said, it's as if God is, is, is like a father of a toddler who, who the father scoops up the toddler, puts him on his knee, and starts talking baby talk to that toddler so the toddler will understand. That's what God is like. God is like that, and he stoops near to us, and he talks to us in baby talk so that we will understand. But that at the same time, the analogy breaks down because when we say that the word is baby talk so that we understand, we're not saying anything negative about this word. It's still wonderful. It's still wonderful. The problem, the problem is not with the word. The problem is with ourselves. We are too dull. We are too dumb. We are not smart enough. So God comes near to us and teaches us in his word. In in verse 130, it says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to to the simple. So when we really encounter the Bible, when we really open the Bible, when we really press through the drowsiness, press through our boredom, our sinful boredom, when we press through and and read the Bible for what it really is, it reveals the wonders of God to us. It reveals the wonders of God to us. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple, to the simple. In high school, we had this phrase, it's not the nicest phrase, as you can imagine, being in high school. It ain't the, ain't, he ain't the sharpest tool in the shed, right? He ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. And that's true for all of us, right? None of us are the sharpest tool in the shed. All of us are dull in our love for God. All of us are sleepy in our affections. All of us, when we lose ourselves in the wonder of God, we fall asleep. We fall asleep. There's a lethargy and a a laziness and an apathy that that pervades our minds and our hearts. And so what we need God to do is to enlighten our minds 
He needs to give understanding to the simple. He needs to take that doctor's scalpel, the two-edged sword of the word, and cut out our infection. Whatever's keeping us from, from paying attention to God's word, whatever's tripping us up, whatever's that wall that keeps us from loving the word of God, God's word needs to, needs to invade us and help us understand it. He needs to lift our eyes. He needs to open our eyes to see wonderful things from the law. He needs to open our eyes. He needs to do that miracle in my heart so that I love the word, so that I love God's commandments. So the word of God is wonder. And secondly, it... it, evokes a response of desire. We could call this desiring God's word. In, in verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. And the reason he wants to know God's commandments is because he wants to know God himself. He wants to know God himself. So he says, God, show me your commandments. Show me the way that I should walk in. And whenever we experience some some question in life say it's a move or choosing a college or choosing a job should i take that job or should i marry this person whenever we do that we start to long for god's revelations right we start reading the bible more as many of you know emily and i are at a crossroads in our life and so we crave the knowing god's will for our lives there was a song a few years back that was very popular, Third Day Song. It's a decent song. Um, but the, the chorus says, give me a revelation, show me what to do, because I've been trying to find my way and I haven't got a clue. Right? And that's, that's where we, we often go to when we're, we're looking at this job or we're looking at this, this person. Is it the will of God that I marry this person? What's the will of God for my life? And whenever I start to feel that, whenever I think, okay, where's, where in the world is God leading me next? God, give me a revelation because I haven't got a clue. Whenever I start to think that those thoughts, God starts to, God has a good sense of humor because immediately what comes to my mind is not some revelation of a place that I'm supposed to go, but it's 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for your life in Christ Jesus. Another thing that God brings to mind is the, the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? What more can he say, Ryan? What more can you say? Why are you hungering for this extra revelation? You have the word of God in your life. You know the commandments move forward in boldness. Don't get frozen by indecision. Don't wonder what the, if, if I take this way, if I go this way, it might, I might step out of God's will. No, you know the will of God for your life. Walk in the commandments of the Lord. There's this freedom that the word brings. God has shown us everything we need for life and godliness. God has shown you everything you need for life and godliness in the word. So brothers and sisters, take up the word and read it. 
Read it. See, see what God has told you. See his commandments and walk in them. We don't need anything else. His word is sufficient. Along with wanting to know God's commandments, the psalmist also wants to stay away from iniquity. So he says in verse 133, Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. We know our tendency towards sin. The biggest thing that keeps us from the commandments of God is not that that we're missing God's will for our life, but that we, in our sinful tendencies, reject God's commandments for our life. So the psalmist prays, keep back my heart from iniquity. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. That should be our prayer every day. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. What, what is that sin that pulls you, that pulls you away from the commandments of God? You know your heart. Brothers and sisters, Los Alamos is one of the wealthiest places I have ever seen. Guard yourself from the love of money. Guard yourself from the love of possessions. Guard yourself from, from greed or, or that idolizing stability. Guard yourself. Pray, God, let no iniquity get dominion over my life. You know if that's a struggle for you. Or it could be sexual sin. Does does lust draw you? Does pride draw your heart? Every single one of us has has sins that trip us up. and, And we need to hear the warning that, like John Owen says, kill sin or it will kill you. So we cry out to God. We don't focus on that sin. We focus on God himself and we cry out, God, keep your servant from sin. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. So in the next two points, I want to show briefly how the wonder of God's word reveals the wonder of God himself We've seen that a little bit, but also the wonder of his righteousness. It reveals the wonder of God himself. Like I said, God dwells in inapproachable light, but God has given us light from the scriptures. There's this light imagery that in the unfolding of your law, the word gives light. It's as if the the face, the countenance of God can be seen in scripture. Augustine once said, In the scripture, we can see the face of God for now. For now. One day, we will see God face to face. One day, you will stand before your creator and Lord. And we should always remember that. But right now, how we see the face of God is through faith in the pages of scripture. So the psalmist talks about, in in verse 132... God turning his face to him, turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. And in 135, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. So what he's talking about there is relationship. He's talking about relationship with God. 
And Parker emphasized this a few weeks ago, that that relationship is crucial to the Psalms. The Psalms guard us from hypocrisy because they keep our relationship with God real. If we read the Psalms and we make the Psalms our own prayer, we won't just come to church. We won't just do these duties like reading the word, but we will actually be seeking God's face. We'll be seeking God's face in the pages of Scripture, and we'll want that relationship with God himself. So the psalmist alludes to the priestly blessing in Numbers, where the priest would stand up and bless the people of Israel and say, The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And our question is, okay, how does that happen? In the priestly blessing, it doesn't tell us how that happens. But here in this psalm, it tells us it's through the word of the Lord. It's through the word of the Lord that that we walk in the presence of God. God uh, sets our paths straight. He illuminates our paths, and then we walk a life before the face of God. We have that relationship with him. We seek him, and we seek to know him. Jim Hamilton once wrote, The opening of the light-giving word will mediate the shining of the light-giving face. To read the Bible is to encounter God. Another author says, To read in the economy of grace is to read with our faces exposed to the face of God shining on us through the text. So do we have that kind of respect for the word? that respects that this is how I will see the face of God through the eyes of faith as he reveals his wonders to me, as he reveals how beautiful and how majestic he is. This is the place that I will see God. Do we have that respect? For most of Christian history, the the word was what judged us, what judged us people, what judges Christians. But In the middle of the 18th century, it flipped around where people became judges of the word. So you had people like Thomas Jefferson who took a razor blade to the Gospels and and crafted the life of Jesus Christ by taking out all the miracles of God and, and giving the life and doctrine of Jesus. That would have been unthinkable in the previous centuries. Because they understand this word is the word of God. Who am I to cut out what I don't like? And we may not do it in that that sort of way, but, but we have that tendency to stand as judge over the word. But brothers and sisters, remember that it is in the word of God that he reveals himself. So fourthly, the word of God reveals his wonders of righteousness. So... There's a connection here between verses 129 and 144. So 129 says, wonders are your testimonies. And 144 says, righteous are your testimonies. So we're supposed to see see that these two stanzas here are tied together. The wonders of God are shown to us in his righteous actions. 
So I'm going to read in, in that stanza in 137 that focuses on the righteous wonders of God. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your word. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. What the psalmist is doing in showing that these two things are, these two stanzas are to be read together is to show us that the wonders of God are one with the righteousness of God. And as Mark preached, as he was preaching through the gospel of Romans, is the righteousness of God is his saving justice, where God himself is the righteous one who acts and does his wonder of making us righteous in in Christ. It's his saving justice, where he makes right that which is fundamentally twisted. So the wonder of God is tied to the righteousness of God. So the psalmist waits for God to establish his righteous rule through his wonders, through working his wonders. But the psalmist sees he's broken. He sees oppression all around him. And in verse 141, he says, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. So this is the, the heart of justifying faith. It's the heart of justifying faith. What he sees with his eyes is that he is small and despised. He is nothing in comparison to the world. He is nothing. When the world looks at him, they see nothing. They see someone who is small and someone that they despise. And yet, that person who is small and despised and sees the oppression around him, sees the unrighteousness around him, looks up to God and sees his righteousness and his true word and trusts in God himself. It's as if that thing, that that righteousness of God and that ability of God to make right is more real than what the eyes can see. So he trusts in God. He trusts that God will work again. He trusts that God will will order the universe. He will make it right. When I was in Liberia, there was just this insatiable craving for signs and wonders. A lot of the churches were, were named the International Church of Wonders. They were they were craving this wonder. They were craving the extraordinary. A lot of us wish that God would break into our own lives and give us a miracle. That he would, he would come down, that, that he would tear the heavens and come down and work a miracle in our lives. We all have that craving. We all wish for that. But it's as if we, we read the, the scriptures and we see the parting of the Red Sea and we think that that's an ordinary event. Or we see the feeding of the 5,000 and we think that's an ordinary event. But the reality is those are extraordinary wonders of God that point a certain direction, point to God himself. They're written down because they are extraordinary. Yes, God still works in amazing ways. He still works 
miracles. We should ask for him to heal us. We should ask for those extraordinary events. But what we need to remember is that oftentimes faith is not by sight. Faith is not by sight. We believe in God's righteousness. We believe, contrary to what we see in our experiences, we believe God that he will make us and those things around us right. The greatest miracle is a sinner being saved by grace. The greatest miracle is that you are sitting right here, believing in the Lord, believing in Christ for your righteousness. That is a wonder of God. So it's as if the scriptures pull us into its orbit and we believe the scriptures. We believe that they are real, that they are true, that they tell us about the righteousness of God. And then God works a wonder within our hearts as we believe him. We believe him and God works a miracle in us and transforms us. That's the heart of justifying faith. We believe in the wonder of Jesus Christ and he makes us right before God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the theologian during World War II, understood this. And he he wrote about the power of reading the Bible. He said, we are uprooted from our own existence and we are taken back to the holy history of God on earth. There God has dwelt with us and there God still deals with us today with our needs and our sins by means of divine wrath and grace. What is important is not, is not that God is a spectator and participant in our life today, but that we are at attentive listeners and participants in God's action. God is with us today only as long as we are there. A complete reversal occurs here. It is not that God's help and presence must be proved in our life. Rather, God's presence and help have been demonstrated for us in the life of Jesus Christ. It is a fact more important for us to know what God did to Israel in God's Son, Jesus Christ, than to discover what God intends for us today. We must become acquainted with scriptures first and foremost for the sake of our salvation. So it's in the word that the wonder of God is revealed, that God's work, that God works a miracle in our own hearts and that Jesus Christ is revealed. So in conclusion, I want to show how Jesus is the wonder of God's saving righteousness. Jesus is wonderful. That Christmas text, Isaiah 9, 6, 9, 6, talks about how his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. It's not that he's Wonderful Counselor, but that he is wonderful. Jesus is wonderful. He's beyond us. He's beyond our understanding. And yet in Jesus Christ, God has come near to us and explained to us who he is. So we can pray, your testimonies are wonderful, God, because they reveal Jesus. Your testimonies are righteous because they reveal Jesus. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, once said, The scripture is the field in which Jesus, the pearl of great price, is hidden. So Jesus is the wonder that we long for. Jesus is that miracle that we long for. Jesus is satisfying. Jesus is relationally satisfying. Everything that you need is found in Jesus Christ. 
Your deepest longing is found in Jesus. And he's come near to us to explain God to us, to reveal God to us through his life, death, and resurrection. You can know the wonder of God when you take up the word because the word points us to Jesus Christ. If you say, I want to know him, I want to know this Jesus, go to the word. Talk to other to Christians who are, who are reading the word, who know this Jesus, because every single one of us needs Jesus, who's the wonder of God and the righteousness of God. During Jesus' earthly ministry, all the people around him responded in wonder to Jesus. That feeling of wonder, whenever we experience it, no matter where we are, is supposed to lead us in worship specifically to Jesus Christ. And we see him most clearly in the scriptures. I want to close with just reading the last few verses of, of that third stanza, Kof, starting in verse 145. With my whole heart I cry, Answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. just want to close with that verse in 148. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. <clears throat> I just want to invite you this week to be awake in wonder to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be awake that he can make you righteous. That he is, he is revealed in this word. Be awake in wonder at Jesus. I'll pray and then Parker will come up and give us the benediction. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from your law. God, we want to see you. We want to see Jesus. God, we know that one day every single one of us will stand before you face to face. So God, we, I pray that those here would cultivate a relationship with you now, that they would know your saving righteousness and the wonder that you worked in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be awake in wonder at Jesus and, and the way that we would see Jesus is through your word, that we would take it up and read God, awaken us from our, our sleepiness and our, and our dull affections. We pray that you would meet us now this week as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.